Oh, can you hang on a second? Are we being recorded right now? Yeah, now we're being recorded. Okay, hang on a second. Oh, now I'm on hold. Hello, sorry about that. When you first were talking about non-canonical scholarship, I, because I have known you for a long time and know about some of your sort of adjacent interests, kind of thought you meant, you know, like weird stuff that's not even religious studies, but that you can bring under the tent. But with Eisler, you're talking about a guy who clearly is an important religion scholar amongst all the other things that he is, and yet I've never heard of him, right? And as you describe here, most people have never heard of him. I had never heard of Robert Eisler either until I discovered him in 2008 through his book, Man into Wolf. But 10 years later, I found myself writing a 60-page afterword on Eisler for the Italian translation of Man into Wolf, and I don't even read Italian. As my friend Dr. Kristen Toby of John Carroll University noted in the intro, my research into Eisler started with an interest in non-canonical or discarded works of religious studies scholarship and what they might teach us. Then it went much farther. In this podcast, I will try to uncover the tortuous tale of Eisler's life and work, as well as the story of my long obsession with him. In this, our first episode, we go to the place where it all started for me and where it all more or less ended for Eisler. Man into Wolf, an anthropological interpretation of sadism, masochism, and lycanthropy. The book is 30 pages of essay and 210 pages of endnotes, which is an unusual format to say the least. The essay is a lecture that he gave at the Royal Society of Medicine in London in 1949. He'd been living in England for the last 10 years, where he had fled after 15 months in Dachau and Buchenwald. We'll get to this in another episode, but the last decade of his life in England was a mixed bag at best. His health was failing. He and his wife were flat broke, having lost everything under the Nazi occupation. They lived with a series of friends and took on odd jobs. But it was also the time that he produced the work that is probably the most well-known today. This is A Very Square Pig, a podcast about Robert Eisler. Episode 1, Man into Wolf. In 2008, I was in Ann Arbor, Michigan, wandering around a used bookstore, making my rounds of the various sections. I always made stops, and still do make stops, at religion, anthropology, history, psychology, philosophy, and whatever they call the section with the ghosts, vampires, UFOs, and paranormal phenomena. Often they call it metaphysics. It was in that last section that a book jumped out at me. On the cover was a crudely drawn face that was half man and half wolf. I turned it over and saw that it was given the triple subject classification psychology slash occult slash anthropology. Inside, I read that the main text was preceded by an introduction written almost 30 years after the book's original publication by someone named Donald D. Lethrop, M.D., the former director of the Relationship Center in Boise, Idaho. What followed was a five-page forward by the author himself, written three months before he died in 1949. Next came a 30-page essay that had apparently been an address delivered to the Royal Society of Medicine, quote, reproduced as exactly as the speaker can remember words not written down in advance, end quote. The rest of the book was taken up by 240 endnotes and five appendices. The first note on the Marquis de Sade was 12 pages long and had five footnotes of its own. The book was, of course, the 1978 paperback edition of Man into Wolf, an Anthropological Interpretation of Sadism, Masochism, and Lycanthropy by Robert Eisler. The store was a kind of high-end antiquarian bookstore, and Eisler's book was the only one to fit my budget, so I picked it up. And that's how this long digression from my actual scholarly work on Hindu myth and ritual began. 
Now, what you may ask, does an anthropological interpretation of sadism, masochism, and lycanthropy actually mean? I had the same question. Here's what Eisler says in the preface. The aim of this book is wider than its title would lead the reader to expect. It attempts to suggest the possibility of a historical, or rather prehistorical, evolutionist derivation of all crimes of violence, from the individual attack on life known as murder or manslaughter, to the collective organized killing which we call war. The author has tried to show that the mute witness of the fossil archaeological remains of prehistory, the period before articulated human thought found the means of permanent expression in word and writing, can be made intelligible on the basis of Jung's theory of archetypal ideas surviving in the ancestral subconscious strata of the human mind, and revealing themselves all over the world in the legends, myths, and rites of historic man, as well as in the fleeting dreams and lasting delusions of contemporary humanity. If this is true, an introductory chapter of fundamental importance can be lifted from the realm of the myths or legends concerning the fall of man into the range of the authentic history of humanity. If it is not, the author would like to say with Macaulay, quote, If I am in the wrong, my errors may set the minds of others at work, and may be the means of bringing both them and me to a knowledge of the truth. That line at the end from Thomas Babington Macaulay that Eisler borrows speaks for me as well. Macaulay was an arrogant Victorian imperialist who famously claimed that all of the Arabic and Sanskrit literature in the world, which you couldn't read, wasn't worth one good shelf of a European library. But we'll forget that in the interest of saying that I am going to get a lot of things wrong in this podcast. I'm going to get a lot of things wrong because I'm a historian of religions, and so was Eisler. But he was also an economist and an art historian and a historian of money and a historian of science and a philosopher. I am not a polymath, but I can also say that probably no one, and that includes Eisler, is a true polymath like that. But what's really great about Eisler is that his voracious appetite for knowledge put him into contact with some of the most important thinkers of the 20th century. Now, the people that he knew and the people who he did influence include Jung, Freud, Karl Popper, A.B. Warburg, Walter Benjamin, Gershom Scholem, Martin Buber. Now, there are hundreds of books written about those guys, and rightly so. But Eisler only has one crappy Wikipedia article to his name. And that is really sad because his life took as many twists and turns as his scholarship did, and it is truly a fascinating thing to behold. In order to do Eisler justice, I decided to do a podcast where I could reach out to people who knew about the things he knew about, knew about the times he was living in, and could talk about them with me. To start off, I went to my friend David Dawson at the Universidad de Costa Rica. Dawson is interested in thinkers who ask really big questions. And so I sent Man Into Wolf to him, and I asked him what he thought about it and what he thought about the podcast. You know, I'm pleased to hear that you're doing the podcast on Eisler. You know, the word needs to go out. And this book is just electrifying um, <laughs> the piece of uh, theory on uh, human origins and um He's definitely in in a in some in some very dark territory of the psyche, but um, he's also coming up with a theory of human origins out of whole cloth. I can't see that it derives from any other major uh, thinker with with a, the idea about where human beings came from, especially one that involves 
you know, the sort of ethological threshold there, how human beings sort of, you know, emerge from a sort of more animalistic state, which may actually be a more pacific state, a more well-adapted one. What is the plan? Through hypnosis, I'm going to regress this boy back, back into the primitive past that lurks within him. I'm going to transform him and unleash the savage instincts that lie hidden within. And then? Then I'll be judged a benefactor. Mankind is on the verge of destroying itself. The only hope for the human race is to hurl it back into its primitive dawn, to start all over again. That's from the 1957 cult classic, I Was a Teenage Werewolf, which the Dutch anthropologist and werewolf expert Willem de Blecourt has told me he believes was inspired by Man and a Wolf. What you heard that mad scientist saying was that we have to go back to the beginning in order to save humanity. And Eisler thought that too. He thought all the myths that we have about the fall, like the sin in the Garden of Eden, are memories of what happened to human beings during the Ice Age when we began to, because of food scarcity, copy and mimic the actions of wolves and other pack hunting animals. That is to say, we began to kill and eat flesh and also to wear animal skins to keep ourselves warm, to establish alpha male dominance patterns, sexual jealousy and possessiveness. All this stuff he said was not inherent to humans, but came about in this adaptation, this mutation. When you think about it, this is actually kind of a sunny outlook, especially for someone who had been subject to such degradation and humiliation in concentration camps at the hands of the Nazis. Eisler still thinks that along with that inheritance of the carnivorous, raping wolf imitators, we also have the inheritance of the peaceful, herd-dwelling primates that were the other kind of human. While these vegetarian herds are the ancestors of the recent wholly peaceful food-gathering tribes and of the primitive grain and fruit-growing populations, the lupine packs of carnivorous predatory werewolves running down and tearing their game to pieces as the canine predatory beasts do, became the ancestors of the hunting, i.e. hounding tribes, who attacked not only what we would now call subhuman animals, but also preyed on the more conservative, fruit-gathering human herds, reluctant to adopt a bloodthirsty new mode of life, killing the males, raping and enslaving the females, falling upon them while they were gathering and treading the ripe grapes of the wild vines in the wood, and enjoying the new must. Now this isn't really a theory at all, is it? This is a story. And for me, it's a story that is not completely crazy, while it's definitely also not completely sane. I really wanted to know what people thought about it at the time, so I started looking for book reviews. This one was written by Terence Mullally in the March 1952 issue of Man. To sum up, it must be pointed out that although Eisler carries his theory to extremes, which in our present state of knowledge appear to be unwarranted, he has nonetheless produced one of the most stimulating books to appear for some time, and I wish to take this opportunity to pay tribute to a great European scholar who died because he was not prepared to compromise his principles, and who by the breadth of his learning and his passionate intellectual integrity has placed us all deeply in his debt. This is one of the nicer things said about Eisler after his death, somebody who recognized the suffering that he underwent in the war. Not only was he put into a concentration camp by the Nazis, but when he finally made it to England, someone else had taken the job that he had there and refused to give it up. To add to that, he was then imprisoned by the British in a camp for Jewish refugees on the Isle of Man. 
We'll look at that sad and sordid history in detail later, but I do appreciate Professor Mullally's respect for Eisler. Most reviewers, though, were fixated on how strange the book was, 30 pages of essay and 210 endnotes. For example, there's this one from the 1953 American Academy of Political and Social Science. It's by a guy named W.G. Eliasberg. This is a very unusual book. It is not a book at all, but an astonishing agglomeration of very worthwhile knowledge presented in the form of notes. It is like a structure consisting of a very widely spread and luxuriously finished basement and very little above that level. And finally, this one by Arthur Lewis Wood for the Journal of Criminal Law, Criminology, and Police Science in 1954 makes a good point. This is how he characterizes Eisler's argument. It poses a complicated series of dubious propositions to explain what can otherwise be attributed to more verifiable facts. And on the other hand, it oversimplifies the problem by attributing virtually all violent acts of man to the manifestations of an instinct. Granted that a developing science is nourished by the uninhibited speculation of brilliant minds, It astonishes this reviewer that a contribution is seriously received which fails to refer to the contemporary works of others. Murder, assault, and war are behavior patterns of man. They are psychic responses taking place in a system of social relationships. There is no reference in this book to the contributions of modern psychology, psychiatry, sociology, or cultural anthropology on these subjects. An able classical scholar is not expected to contribute to the scientific problems of modern physics. If only to a lesser degree, he is also now unable to contribute to the behavioral sciences of man. I said he made a good point before, and he does. Eisler's work is idiosyncratic. He's writing and operating in his own private intellectual field, often completely apart from other people who are working on the same problems from different angles. That happened more and more later in his life. But the reviewer is also saying something that is troubling, which is that psychology and sociology, where all the big ideas about humans and who they are and what they are are coming from, is now so scientifically advanced that regular people who aren't specifically trained for it can't say anything intelligent at all. That's troubling to me. After 54, Man into Wolf more or less disappears from the scholarly literature. Until 1981, when an article pops up, and I found this and was pretty shocked by it at the time, called Social Structure, Psychoanalysis, and Collective Aggression by H.C. Greisman in the History of European Ideas, Volume 2, Number 1, from 81. Reisman, to my knowledge, is the only modern scholar or a scholar from the modern university post-60s who took Eisler's work seriously and tried to move it forward. So I corresponded with Greisman and have been doing so for six years about Eisler. And I got on the phone with him recently to ask him how that article came about and how he found Eisler. And like me and everyone else who's ever encountered Man into Wolf, he had a story about where his copy came from. It starts off in 1967 in a place called Newburgh, New York, which he describes in some pretty foreboding terms. I don't know if you're a reader of Stephen King or H.P. Lovecraft or one of these horror writers, but they all seem to locate their horror stories in these peculiar towns that 
shouldn't even be there. It's a town of about 20,000, 30,000 people, only about 50 miles up the Hudson from New York, but it's got a curse on it. Well, what better place to get a copy of Man into Wolf? Fast forward to 1975 or 76, Eastern Sociological Association meeting, Hotel Pennsylvania, New York City. There was a session there that featured E.O. Wilson. He was a middle-aged guy who had written a book called Sociobiology. And this was a groundbreaker of extraordinary proportions because when I was in graduate school, everything was the Adam Smith model, you know, tabula rasa. The, the essence of the human being is the total of the uh, marks on the on the blank slate. Yeah, the notion of hereditary uh, instincts or tendencies or, I mean, probably even illnesses, I wouldn't know. Well, Wilson kind of turned this whole paradigm on its head. I guess he had breached a taboo in even mentioning that biology, natural selection could have something to do with human behavior. And the kind of human behavior he was interested in was altruism. Why should human beings be altruistic? Well, that got my motor running, as it were, and I started thinking about sociobiology and biosociology. And then I fell to reading uh, Freud's uh, Group Psychology and the Analysis of the Ego. And there's a whole lot in that book. And one of the names in that book that stands out is a, an author named Wilfred Trotter. Trotter had written this book called Herd Instinct. So I went to work and produced an article. I think it was called Herd Instinct and the Foundations of Biosociology. I could be wrong. This is, you know, 40 years ago or more. And then a letter arrived for me at my office in the mail. It was from Wilfred Trotter's son who had read my paper and was doing some work on his dad's bio and couldn't find a certain article and asked me if I would go look for it. I mailed this thing off to him and got another letter, a very gracious man. And then he said, well, if you're ever in England, drop by. Yeah, be sure to do that. And lo and behold, about a year later, I found myself in a room with Dr. Trotter and his charming wife and tea and crumpets or whatever, and we had a nice long talk. And in the course of this conversation, Robert Eisler's name came up, and another bell rang in the back of my head, and I thought, gosh, I wonder if that old copy of Man to Wolf is still stuck on my shelf somewhere. And sure enough, it was. You know, I still have the damn thing. Let me see here. Just look at my notes all over it. 21 shillings was the price, and uh, printed in Czechoslovakia, figure that one out, and from that came the paper that uh, 25 years later you wrote me the email uh, some years back, and the rest is history. Professor Greisman's story about going back to his old copy of Man and the Wolf after hearing E.O. Wilson speak in 71 prompted me to go speak with my colleague Myrna Perez-Sheldon. Professor Sheldon teaches in the World Religions Program and the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies Program at Ohio University, and she's also trained as a historian of science. She's especially interested in ways that theories of evolution have actually functioned as reifications or justifications of certain kinds of normative gender roles for males and females in society. So I sent her a copy of Man and a Wolf and asked her what she made of it in light of the text that she knew about from that period. So when I was reading this, 
it immediately put me to mind of a kind of trio of writers who are very famous in this time. So like Conrad Lorenz, Audrey, and then Morris, who write in this time, just in this time, kind of 50, 40s, 50s, 60s, a set of books on aggression and promote theories of aggression, particularly male aggression, as the kind of theory of, for lack of a better word, civilization development or evolutionary progress. And so there are resonances between man into wolf and all and all of those texts, I would say. And those texts are much more studied, partly because they were very, very widely read. I mean, even to the point of having an influence on something like 2001, A Space Odyssey, right? So the argument for studying texts like that is to get a sense of a broad kind of colloquial or vernacular sense of these scientific ideas and the place that they have, which is different than looking at a text like this. And I guess reading reading this text, and I would have to, if you're going to do it, you'd have to do more carefully than I have so far. Reading this text alongside those texts might be interesting, right? You know, at some point after Darwin and really broad strokes, there is introduced this idea that we are evolved from lower forms, you know, probably apes. And in particular, Darwin saw what he would call like savages as, I say that in like heavy quotes, as this like demonstration of a link between us and primates. And so in the kind of broad, like Western worldview, you get this massive shift from the idea that maybe we're created beings and that we're in the image of God to this idea that we're descended from just like brute animals, right? And so he's like doing this kind of very strange thing where he's saying, we are, you know, he's not making, he's not making a religious argument that we're like, you know, from some noble like image of God. He is saying that we're descended from primates, but he's arguing that those primates were peaceful, vegetarian, um, and that it's only more recently and this kind of chance mutation that turned us into this like more aggressive, warlike creature, which is very different than all of those other more popular theorists that I that I talked about. They all argued that it was aggression, specifically male aggression, that it was the kind of thing that transformed proto-humans into humans. So he's almost like saying there's this step in our evolutionary process where we were more peaceful and the aggression is only a recent kind of aberration. Um, and that's this whole discussion about the way he doesn't like the, the way that people will use atavism, so an evolutionary throwback, as a kind of synonym for violence or like barbarousness, right? He's like, I believe in atavism, but I think that the atavism is actually to a more peaceful state. I can't really think off the top of my head, and it's not to say that they're not, they don't exist. I can't think of another thinker mid-century who's making an argument quite like that, of like definitely an evolutionary argument. It's not a religious argument, or it's not a, you know, it's not a deistic or creationistic argument, but it is arguing for a kind of essential goodness to human nature. I asked Professor Sheldon about how Eisler's notion of evolution fit in with the way that those ideas developed over the course of the 20th century. One way to think about the like changes through the, the 20th century is you have what people call the Darwinian synthesis. So in the early part of the 20th century, you have all of the early genetic discoveries. So you have classical genetics, which is basically Mendel. You start to get the discovery of chromosomes, um, especially with the experiments with fruit flies with somebody like Thomas Hunt Morgan. So on the one hand, you have a view of genetics that is accounting for traits. That's Mendel. And then you start to have a view of genetics that's getting a physical location for the genes. That's the chromosomes. But they still don't yet know where the actual hereditary information is and how it works. And what you get on the other side of the articulation of the structure of the DNA molecule 
on the other side of that, and then particularly on the other side of recognizing that DNA codes for proteins, which you get in the 50s and 60s, is what people will call an informational view of heredity. So you know where the hereditary information is, and you also know how it works. And so you start to think of genes as like semiotic systems, so that there's information, they code for things, they're recipes. And you don't have that in the early 20th century at all. So what you can have by the 70s is an argument like evolutionary forces would have an influence on our past, and those forces would select for certain genes that would persist and code for certain behaviors that persist in us. And that's kind of the way that people still think about it. So if you talk about, for instance, like an evolution of male aggression, now the argument is something like, well, in our evolutionary past, there were certain selective forces that favored males being aggressive in their pursuit of females. And so the genes that were associated with those traits were selected for, those genes persist in the population. And not only do they persist as a physical entity or as a kind of marker of a trait, they also persist as a kind of recipe book for behavior. And it's because of this recognition that genes code for proteins. So the way that an evolutionary psychologist now might think about it is you have genes inside of you that were selected for in what they call an ancestral evolutionary environment. So the forces that were at play in that environment were the things that picked your genes and they're still with you and they still code for behaviors that were useful to you, that would have been useful to you in that environment. It's almost like they're these like ancient evolutionary, sometimes they'll use language of like puppets. It's also starting to be the rise of cybernetic theory and then also computer science. You get a lot of like coding and software kind of language for talking about this stuff. But some people will, will talk about your genes as like, software codes that were selected for and shaped by an, by an ancestral environment. And then they still code for those behaviors that kind of get expressed in a modern environment. I guess a way of thinking about it simply is somebody like you, Wilson, in the 70s would have argued something like, in our past, males were favored to genes that prompted males to hunt and also to fight for females. Those allowed those males to succeed. And so those same genes code for similar kinds of behaviors, and they just get expressed in different ways. So that's why the argument is that's why men are good at being corporate leaders. It's why they commit sexual violence. It also ends up being an argument for something like why men are better at science, because the way that the argument runs is that men tend to be good at things that are about competition and aggression and not about things that are about social cohesion. So the argument is engineering and science are about competition and risk-taking and aggression, and they're not about social cohesion. So the thing that struck me about Eisler is he does not at all have an informational view of heredity. So this stuff that is developed and then gets taken up in sociobiology in the 1970s, that's not at all what's going on in Eisler. So instead, he has to make a kind of interesting argument about, you know, when that genetic mutation happened, like, how does that still persist in us? And he locates it in this kind of, like, collective unconscious kind of, he, he goes to psychoanalytic theory basically to explain it about like, it's not in our genes because he doesn't have that concept in the way that they would have in the seventies. That's why he starts talking about dreams a lot, right? Of like, there's some mutation and then it's persisting in this kind of like collective unconscious for battle, like a better word, which is interesting. Right. It is. It's, I mean, there's a lot of things there. It, yeah. I just said a lot about a yeah, lot of things. Yeah. So let's look at a footnote and see what kind of evidence Eisler puts together in order to demonstrate what he sees as the survival of a primate behavior pattern from before the time of the wolf mutation. 
I myself remember vividly how, having gone up to the top of the Eiffel Tower in Paris some twenty years ago on a windy day, I felt with dismay the steel structure swaying like a reed in the storm. The most astonishing features of the adventure were two strange experiences. First of all, my soles, enclosed in socks and shoes, contracted in a curious sort of cramp, as if my feet were still prehensile limbs, clinging to the branch of a tree. And secondly, while I was looking down on the city from behind a seven-foot-high steel-and-wire lattice railing surrounding the platform, I felt an overwhelming urge to throw myself down, head forward into the abyss. The very temptation of the devil sensed by Jesus on top of the mountain, and, according to Josephus, by every visitor to ancient Jerusalem who looked down from the ramparts of the temple into the valley below. This urge, fatal to a human being of our time seized by vertigo on a projecting height, was eminently beneficial for the primate climbing by means of his prehensile arms and feet, who would be killed by falling vertically to the ground from a swaying or breaking branch high up on a tree but could save himself easily by jumping off in good time, head forward, and getting hold of another branch with his hands. Every parachutist knows how much easier it is to bail out by jumping forward than by allowing oneself to fall passively out of the trapdoor. All this is archetypal. So you'll notice that he starts with an anecdote about his having lived in Paris. Throughout the book, he talks about having lived in Paris. He lived in Paris for about three years, and any time during his life he had an opportunity to tell somebody about living in Paris, he did so. Then he moves on to Jesus and Josephus, and finally arrives at this primate behavior, the urge to jump forward to catch the next limb and keep swinging like an orangutan. This is the thing that I really love about Eisler's writing. He writes about everything under the sun, but he doesn't write about all the subjects separately. If he's writing about one subject, he's talking about all of them. So almost every book mentions something about the history of currency. Almost every book mentions something about the Gospel of John. Almost every book mentions something about philosophy, the philosophy that he learned in Vienna. In fact, in this book, his last, he reproduces exactly a line drawing that he used in one of his very first essays from the very late 19th century called The Will to Pain. And so Eisler is always talking about everything at once. In this next passage, he gets back to one of his other favorite subjects, Greek religion, and suddenly he's talking about the wolf mutation, and it's no longer about apes swinging through the trees, but it's about blood and death and sacrifice and Dionysian ecstasy. So is, of course, the erotic fascination exerted upon the contemporary masochist by the naked Venus in the fur, representing la femme fauve. The nude, blood-stained maidad, or raving woman in her bare lynx or fox pelt, coursing with her furiously excited male partners in the pack of the wild hunter, through the primeval forests, vying with them in bloodlust when they came in at the death, and finally assuaging in a wild embrace their common mad excitement after the omophagic orgy, feasting on the live, raw, and bloody meat of the quarry. As archetypal as the male masochist's ideal of the nude lady in the pelt and the feminine wish-dream of being assaulted by wolves, lust crying out from the inside, followed by the pains of motherhood in consequence of such rape suffered by the maiden lover of pain, is the male Actaeon's conversion into a stag torn to pieces by the hounds of merciless wolfish Artemis Lycaea, because he has seen her naked, that is, without her pelt. Archetypally, these hounds are rather... Bitches. 
as we know that the English-speaking peoples call the loose-living, primordially promiscuous woman a bitch, just as the Romans and the Greeks called her a she-wolf, Lupa and Luke. Archetypal also are the sadist murderer's practices of beating his quarry with the hunting rider's horsewhip, of binding the victim like a captured animal, dragging the naked body over the ground and through the undergrowth. It's important to note that Eisler is not saying that these sadistic impulses get sublimated into something more acceptable like competitiveness, but he's saying that they continue to erupt throughout human history in these violent and tragic ways. So one example of this is a later passage where he compares a specific example of brutality perpetrated by the SS with an ancient Dionysian ritual. When the German occupation authorities closed down the Czech University of Prague, a considerable number of students, girls and boys, went in an orderly procession to the entrance doors, rhythmically shouting their demands that the doors should be reopened so that they could continue their studies. After this had been going on for some minutes, a flying squad of SS men drove up in lorries, surrounded the students and drove them through the doors which had suddenly been opened from the inside by other SS guards. The students were herded into the largest lecture hall with blows and kicks, then they were told to strip completely. When the order had thus been carried out, the doors were opened and the prisoners were told they could go, indeed run out, girls first. In rows on both sides of the door stood SS men who had taken off their own leather belts, weighted with the regulation metal buckles. The stripped victims had to run the gauntlet between them while they were savagely beaten up with these belts and pursued with relentless blows through the long, empty, resounding passages of the house into the arms of other SS men posted at the end of the run to stop the girls. There was in the ancient Arcadian town, Alea, of which considerable ruins survive to this day, a temple of Dionysus in whose honor a feast was celebrated every year known as the Skirea. At the bidding of the Delphic Oracle, women were whipped on this occasion, as were the Spartan youths in the temple of Artemis Orthia. It seems that the cult legend of this ceremony is illustrated on the walls of the Villa Etim. On the right side of Dionysus and Ariadne, a kneeling woman holds the cloak of another woman, who kneels and hides her face in the lap of a third sitting female. The kneeling woman is being severely whipped with what looks like an ox thong or a cane by a winged female who can only be Iris, the messenger maid of the gods. A Bacchic priestess, holding the Thyrsus staff, looks on impassively at the whipping, while another one beats cymbals to drown the sound of the moaning of the flagellated woman. At the other side of the room, a young female hurries into the room in such haste that her veil is blown from her face by the rush of the air. She holds up her hand with a gesture obviously intended to stop the procedure. There is little doubt that Italian scholars knew and that their erotic imagination was fired by the paragraph about the annual whipping of the Arcadian women at a Dionysian festival. This very graphic, gory passage really wraps up lycanthropy, sadism, and masochism all together, as the title indicates. The sadism comes from the wolf-imitating humans. It's less clear about the masochism, and throughout the book he talks about this, but it either comes from part of the sexual play of these sadistic wolf people, or the survival mechanism of the vegetarian herds who submitted and were therefore mated with and produced offspring. It's not clear. Anyway, I want to talk about this passage with Stephen Wasserstrom at Reed College. 
We'll talk to Professor Wasserstrom in a later episode because he has a lot to say about Eisler and Gershom Scholem and Aranos, the group of myth scholars and artists who were associated with Carl Jung that Eisler was part of for a while. I wanted to see what Professor Wasserstrom thought about passages like this and how they fit into Eisler's larger body of work, which of course includes things like economics and philology and art history. Man and to Wolf gives me a kind of insight in, into his placement and Eros in a way that all those other specializations did not, partly because the subtitle, An Anthropological Interpretation of Statism, Masochism, and Lycanthropy. So it, it had this kind of not just sexy, but, but kind of licentious quality to it. One, and two, there was, despite the fact that it came out of his, his the terrible experiences that he underwent in the camps, um, I think a kind of an unhealthy appeal to violence. It seems to me caught up in the kind of fascination with, uh, with this kind of wolf syndrome. In fact, this fascination with the wolf syndrome is exactly what appealed to Christy Monti, who, along with her sister Kelly, writes the best-selling Lewis Kincaid detective novels under the name P.J. Parrish. In one novel, Island of Bones, Man and the Wolf appears on the shelf of Frank, a suspected serial killer who was part of an ancient Spanish clan that has lived in isolation on an island off the coast of Florida for generations. I was surprised to find Eisler not just mentioned, but discussed at length in a 2003 paperback detective novel. So I went to Christie and I asked her how she discovered Man and to Wolf. And just like with everyone else who's ever found that book, it's a long story. This was a strange book, and it was a lot of fun to write, and it had a lot of incidents of just weird synchronicity and, for lack of a better word, serendipity. Um, things just kind of fell together with this book very strangely. It was almost like uh, there was cross-currents of cosmic forces. I don't mean to get kind of woo-woo on you, but it was a very strange book. About two chapters into this book, my husband and I took off to a planned trip to Europe, and we went to Madrid. We flew into Madrid, got in a car, and just started driving north. And we found ourselves on the northern coast of Spain in a very remote area called Asturias. And, and that, and Asturian people have, they're very Latin, they come from Roman times, and a lot of their old, old customs from those days still exist in modern forms that are more acceptable now. And that's actually what got me to the wolf man, as I call him. <laughs> Do you remember how you found the Robert Eisler book? Well, I started researching, as I said, Asturian customs. And they have this custom that comes from the Roman times called Lypercalia, which was the festival of the wolf. And in Asturias, uh, remnants of this ritual still exist in the, in the villages up in the mountains there. And the people called it, I don't know the Spanish, I think it's Beleno Ride. And this is where right of passage where the young men dress in wolf costumes. They go up in the mountains and they ride down on horses and they simulate the abduction and rape of women. I know this sounds awful, but, in, but that's what they did back in the old days. Um, the men would come and abduct women and take them back and marry them. And they still do this in, in very isolated places of Asturias in a very sort of stylized version now. And so that got us to the wolf culture. Uh, I used to, and then I did a lot of research on the wolf in mythology, which is very big. I think I was deep into the Google wormhole one day or rabbit hole, and there he popped up. And I ordered his book. I got one of the original ones. I think it was from the 50s, I think it was written. The 51, yeah. And, yeah, and, and, you know, it was, it was fascinating. You know, it was just fascinating to read. And then I really had a way into the heads and the psyches of the men who lived on this island. 
I had to research this whole idea that the wolf pack primal urge still exists in human beings, and, and that is what creates the most primal violent urges in them. I, I think it's fascinating. You know, it's just a fascinating theory. That's why I say this book was such a strange experience, because they don't always fall into place like this. Um, that one little piece of research leads you to something that you down a road you didn't anticipate was ever going to happen. I, I wish I could have directly quoted in my book Eisler's works, but that would have been a copyright infringement. And I, I was thought about it, and I tried to go about getting some rights, but it got too kind of hairy. So I had to give up with that. So I had to just kind of like have these two detectives sort of discussing the theories in passing. And because they're, you know, just regular cops, regular detectives, they don't go into the whole deep psychology of it the way Eisler, of course, does in the book. I had to have them talk like, you know, real people. For a long time, the only sound in the room was Ray Charles singing a soft accompaniment to the hum of the air conditioner. Finally, Landetta broke the quiet. This is great. He murmured, almost to himself. Lewis looked up. What is it? This man into wolf stuff. Frank had a thing about werewolves. Lewis said. He had a bunch of books about it. Lycanthropy's not really about werewolves. What is it then? Landetta pursed his lips. According to this, it's a mental disorder where a person believes he has turned into a wolf. Lewis just stared at him. Landetta poked a finger at the book spread open beneath the magnifier lamp. This shrink, Robert Eisler, had a theory that violence, war, especially murder, could be traced back to man's primal urges as a member of his animal pack. Woods underlined a bunch of shit in here and wrote a couple of things in the margins. He did? Lewis rose and went over to Landetta. Yeah, there's this passage about how modern man is descended from a mutated wolf species that raped and sometimes even cannibalized females. Landetta looked up. Woods underlined it twice and wrote next to it, see Asturian right. Lewis came closer. Asturian? There was a book in Frank's room with that word in the title. You got it with you? Yeah, but I left it down in the car. Bring it in tomorrow. Here's another passage he underlined. Landetta said. He started reading out loud. The aggressive pack would, whenever occasion offered, kidnap and carry away the females of the weaker tribes. Jesus. Lewis said. Abduction by wolves? Or a man who thought he was? Landetta said. He went back to his reading. Lewis went back to sit on the sofa, shaking his head slowly. Eating the victims? Is that why they never found the women's bodies? Listen to this, Landetta said. Young had a patient with this disorder. The guy dreamed he was part of a herd that he had to leave. So in the dream, he puts on a wolf head disguise and goes off into the woods, becoming an outlaw from his herd. He dreams he is alone on a desert island, like Cayo Costa, the place where Frank had out, Lewis said. Landetta kept reading. Then the guy feels the need to go back to the life he broke away from. When he does, he is surrounded by women from his original herd, but he doesn't recognize them. Frank underlined all that. Lewis asked. Landetta nodded. You should have seen him, Lewis said. Out on that island, it was like he was right at home. Like he was an animal. Landetta asked. Lewis stood up suddenly, pacing a slow, tight circle. This is nuts, he muttered. Landetta was reading something. He looked up. Listen to this, he said. He began to read another passage from Man into Wolf. Murderous, sadistic assaults are sometimes committed by well-educated, highly intelligent persons with no previous convictions or with a record allowing no more at worst than minor sexual irregularities. Or so says the good Dr. Robert Eisler. Landetta closed the book. Shrinks. It's all bullshit. Lewis muttered. 
not always. It actually makes sense that Eisler would end up in a serial killer book, since Man and Wolf, at least according to leading expert on the subject Peter Vronsky, contains the first usage of the term serial killing in the English language. Oddly, it occurs in a footnote about the Punch and Judy puppet shows that are part of English popular culture. The late Dr. W.A. Brend described the enjoyment of tragedy as a relic of sadism. This would not be denied by those who have seen the horror plays regularly performed at the Paris Théâtre du Grand Guignol, and who have observed both the actors and the audience. The serial killings in the Punch and Judy plays for children are so enjoyable because the puppets are of wood, and the beaten skulls sound so wooden and insensitive. Nevertheless, this enjoyment is certainly the harmless abreaction of the cruel urges of infancy. Eisler's strange influence on popular culture extends into other areas as well. Man into Wolf gets mentioned in a collection of avant-garde essays devoted to the music and thought of Frank Zappa, and makes the list of recommended reading at the Dallas Leather Library, which specializes not in leather-bound books, but rather in books for discerning devotees of bondage in the S&M lifestyle and it has been included in the neo-Nazi Iron Youth Reader, despite the fact that in 1945, Eisler published a gleeful obituary for Hitler, in which he pointed out that Der Fuhrer's real name, Schickelgruber, means someone who lives in a sandy patch of scrubland. He signed it, Robert Eisler, late of Dachau and Buchenwald. So we've seen how Man into Wolf has left its track in some strange places in pop culture, but how much influence has it had on religious studies scholarship? I asked my friend Dr. Marcello De Martino, who is himself an expert on Indo-European philology, reads more than a dozen languages from Tamil to Greek, and currently works in diplomacy in Geneva. Marcello sees large parts of Man into Wolf reproduced in Walter Burkert's famous 1972 book Homo Necans, in which Burkert argues that Neolithic hunting practices gave rise to sacrificial religion. But while Burkert cites Eisler for sources, he does not acknowledge how much his theory builds on Eisler's. I asked Dr. Martino why he thought this was. For me, Eisler was one of the most learned scholars in the 20th century. Unfortunately, I was not recognized like that. But in the man into wolf, I think he made a great discovery. For my part, I give credit to Eisler in my next book in reconstructing all the connection that Burkan had with Man into Wolf. For example, there are two cases. There are the myth of Lycaon and the Lupercalia, uh, especially when he says that there are people who hunted the cemetery, is the same who can find in Eisler's book. So, why Burkett didn't want to say expressly that Eisler was his precursor? In my opinion, there are two explanations. The first is Burkett didn't want to tie his name with Heisler. You know, Heisler was criticized a lot by uh, his colleagues in that time. What is the personality of this man? In my opinion, okay, in my opinion, this man was a genius of intuitive manner, but he couldn't handle precisely 
all the field he studied, especially the linguistics. He had a lot of mistakes. So if you want to say that your idea is of icebergs, immediately the people, they say, oh, that's fake, that's a lunacy. That's not the case, or not always. <laughs> so I think that the bad fame uh, that Eisler had only for little features, but not for the great ideas he had. As we will see throughout this podcast, this pattern of Eisler making great discoveries, or at least having great ambitions, and then being sidelined and marginalized occurred throughout his life. Man into Wolf is where the story ended for Eisler, but where it begins for me. In the next episode, we'll go back to 1882, when Eisler is born into a Vienna that was probably the most idea-packed city on the planet. We'll follow him to the University of Vienna, where he tries to figure out how to combine his love of archaeology with his love of philosophy. He also gets arrested for art theft in Italy, slashes his wrist in a jail cell, and gets confined to an asylum. I'd like to thank my guests, David Dawson, H.C. Greisman, Marcello DiMartino, Christy Monti, Myrna Sheldon, Kristen Toby, and Stephen Wasserstrom. For this week's episode, the voice of Robert Iser was provided by Logan Crum, with additional voices by Julie Chitola and Logan Marshall. Throughout the podcast, I have received assistance with engineering, recording, and editing from March Wasileski and Logan Marshall. The music is Shibboleth Beseda, recorded by Eliakum Shapira and his Israeli orchestra. Partial funding has been provided by the Ohio University Humanities Research Fund and the Ohio University Honors Tutorial College Internship Program. Special thanks also go to the Varberg Institute at the School of Advanced Study in the University of London.